Hello, and welcome to the Upper Bowl GM Podcast. My name is Nick Gerardus. It is the Tuesday episode. Took Monday off. My lovely girlfriend Katie was up for the weekend. Did not want to subjugate her to me recording an episode on Sunday night, doing a best and worst of the weekend. So, took yesterday off, regrouped, got some guests lined up for the course of this week, so... It's always better when we have guests. Guests make it more engaging to talk to. Not that I don't like talking to you guys, but it helps me flow ideas a little bit easier when I have someone else to bounce off of them. This week, so far, we have an MLB episode lined up for Thursday recording, so it'll be published on Friday. And then, the episode that will be published on Wednesday, so the day after... So, tomorrow, if you're listening to this on Tuesday when this is published, we're going to be talking about Liverpool with... One of my colleagues from Gotham, one of the best football handicappers who gives out his picks for free, college and NFL, Blakey Locks will be joining the program for tomorrow's episode, and we're going to talk about our favorite soccer team, our favorite football club, Liverpool. But today's episode will not be particularly long. We are delving over into the hockey universe, and we're going to talk about team building. And I don't mean from, like, uh, we're going to all do the trust fall thing where everyone's going to hold out two fingers and the person who's falling backwards has to trust our collective. We're talking about it from a roster construction standpoint, specifically using draft picks and the salary cap, because, because there were two hockey games on Monday night that were encapsulations of the conventional wisdom of how to build an NHL team in the present day. For a long time, the only way to get quality players was through the draft, and that is still the main way to get quality talent, is through the draft and then developing guys. It's not universal, of course. I often say in both my podcasting universe and in my blogging universe, I really do say a lot, talent development is not a science. There is no formula to make a player play well over time and get better with age. It is an art. And not every team is good at it, and not every coach is adept at it. Some coaches are really good at bringing guys along and getting them better when they're young. And some guys are, some coaches are better at motivating their players and pushing the buttons to get a group of veterans to play above their means. The one I like to point at a lot is Elaine Vigneault. When you give Elaine Vigneault a older team, he knows how to get the best out of those veteran guys. When you give him younger players, he has a really hard time getting the most out of them. So, with all that said, as your little tease, I do got to take care of the housekeeping, of course. Please help grow the show wherever you're listening. Follow, subscribe, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Audio Boom, wherever you are, please follow or subscribe. If you're on Apple Podcasts specifically, please go to the page for our show where it has the list of all of our episodes in numeric order. Go all the way to the bottom. I know that's getting to be cumbersome. We have upwards of 50 episodes now. We're really in a nice groove. I'm putting out a lot of content stuff I really enjoy doing. This is a lot of fun. All the way down to where episode one is. Go past episode one. There's five clear stars. Hit the star furthest to the right. That's leaving the show a five-star review. That helps grow the show. The better the reviews, the higher it goes up the charts. And the higher it is on the charts, the more likely people are to stumble upon it, which helps grow the show. So, with all that said, I will see you guys on the other side of the drop. And we're going to talk about team building in the NHL universe. 
and principles that the NHL could look to steal from other sports that work out pretty well. So I will see you guys in one second. And with that, I will just jump right on into it. So, two hockey games on Monday night that caught my attention, particularly. The Ottawa Senators and Calgary Flames, which is 7 o'clock window of hockey games. Calgary got steamrolled. Ottawa thumped them. Final score 5-1. to one. Ottawa, not a particularly good hockey team. Arguably the most dramatic rebuild to ever take place in the NHL. We're talking something comparable to the Detroit Tigers. Kansas City Royals level of teardowns in Major League Baseball, the Brooklyn Nets level of teardown going back a number of years, the Lakers teardown going back a couple of years where their strategy was consistently to select in the top five of the draft every single year, accumulate enough young players that either A, eventually some of those young players will pop, or B, acquire enough of those young players that you can bundle a grouping of them together for a transcendent talent, which the Lakers did. They sent a number of high draft selections to the New Orleans Pelicans for Anthony Davis. Davis, of course, an all-star, an MVP caliber player when he's healthy, top five in the world, debatable top five in the world, but definitely in the discussion when he's healthy. But that is the level of teardown the Ottawa Senators have embarked on. It, the Senators are just four years removed from being in the Eastern Conference Finals. They got to a Game 7 against the Pittsburgh Penguins with a core centered around Matt Duchesne, Eric Carlson, Ryan Dezingle, Jean-Gabriel Peugeot, Chris Anderson, a very older veteran group of guys that have been around. Mark Stone, of course, in that group. They had a substantial amount of talent, but... At the behest of their owner who wanted to cut salary, they, instead of locking up those older players to long-term deals, specifically Carlson and Stone, who are big-ticket players on the teams they were traded to, Ottawa opted to trade them away. Mark Stone to the Vegas Golden Knights. He signed an extension as soon as he got there. And defenseman Eric Carlson to the San Jose Sharks. He signed a very big extension as well. Ottawa is... As extreme a rebuild as you can possibly have. We are going on the second straight season of the Senators being either the least talented or second least talented team in the entire league. Ottawa has a few interesting pieces. Josh Norris has been particularly interesting to watch. Thomas Shabbat, the defenseman who got a long-term deal, has been as expected, he plays extremely heavy minutes against very difficult opposition with little health, and he still manages to be close to even in terms of shot metrics, which is impressive as hell. You've got Eric Brandstrom, who they got in the Mark Stone trade. They also have Tim Stutzel, the draft selection from this past year's draft. He's putting up decent counting stats. His underlying numbers have been pretty bad, but... Ottawa is one way to look at team building. Ottawa looked at the model that a few other teams had, and they took it even further. So we talk about them. And then the other game of interest on Monday night was the Oilers and the Toronto Maple Leafs, which, as I am recording this, is still in the third period. Toronto is thoroughly controlling the flow of this game. 
I know I've been reading a lot about the problems the Oilers have had creating offense. Some of it is stemmed from just who is taking their shots. Edmonton, for a team that has as much high-end talent at forward as they do, allow their defensemen to take a large majority of their shots. And for anyone not familiar with how shot metrics work, especially the ones like expected goals, which have to do with the value of shots, when your defensemen are taking slap shots or snapshots or wrist shots from the high slot or the blue line, those are not high percentage plays. Think of it like this. In basketball, do you want a wing player, a perimeter shooter taking your threes? Or would you rather have, you know, a big man taking your threes? And I don't mean a big man who can hit their threes like Broker Robin Lopez. I mean, like a traditional big man. Would you want... Shaq taking your threes, or would you want, you know, Robert Covington taking your threes? I'm just trying to put this in layman's terms, in basketball terms, that'll make sense for everyone. You want your best players. In in this case, when we're talking about shooters, you want your Connor McDavid, Julian Dreisaitl shooting the puck, taking a majority of your shots when they are on the ice, because their shots have a higher likelihood of going in based on their career shooting percentage, their talent, those kind of things. You don't want your defenseman doing that, but this is not about a strategy or tactics episode. I do want to do a hockey strategy episode. I'm trying to line up a specific guest I have in mind. Haven't been able to make contact with him. going to reach out again, maybe go through an intermediary, see what the best way to get in touch with him is. Someone who's worked in a few different NHL organizations, but I do want to talk specifically today about roster construction. When I talk about roster construction, regardless of sport, We have to talk about it in a few different ways. Number one, we got to talk about value. That is the most important thing when it comes to salary cap sports. Are you allocating your resources, meaning money, your cap space, to necessary positions? There are a few different team builds we see in the NHL, and I know when I say team builds, it sounds like I'm talking EA Sports Ultimate Team stuff, but the principles are the same. They are an Ultimate Team as they are in real life. When you're building an ultimate team in FIFA, in NHL, in Madden, what do you want your team to do? You want to spend your the most money you can on the best players you possibly can. You want to pay a fair price for an elite player so they can make an impact for you. When we look at teams like Toronto, like Edmonton, they have already locked up their marquee players. Connor McDavid, highest paid player in hockey. Austin Matthews, number two. Then we look at the other players on the Leafs. You talk about Mitch Marner, you talk about John Tavares, you talk about William Nylander. The Leafs have about $40 million in cap space tied up in just four players. For context, the NHL salary cap, the ceiling you can hit is $81.5 million. There are limits. Uh, you can go over that with long-term injury reserve, that kind of thing. But generally speaking, your target, you got to be beneath $81.5 million. An NHL roster, in a normal season, you are carrying... 21 to 22 players. You're carrying 18 skaters that compromise your lineup, an extra defenseman, an extra forward, a backup goaltender, and sometimes if you can keep it under the salary cap in your composition, you can afford to carry two additional forwards as well as a seventh defenseman and that backup goalie. Even though those three guys, your three healthy scratches, won't dress, they do count against the salary cap. So When you are talking about the Maple Leafs at their full health, their full capacity, they've been without Austin Matthews, the leading goal scorer in the NHL thus far for the last two games. He has a wrist injury. But you're talking about 
four out of your 18 dressed players, counting for half of the salary cap. That means you need to sign 14 players for $41.5 million. When you average that out, you get to about $3 million per player the cap hit would be. If it was exactly even per all 14 guys, it'd be $2.96 million per player. Of course, that is not how salary caps work. That is not how rosters are constructed. The cap hits vary on various players on the Leafs. Some guys like Morgan Riley make a little bit more. They have some guys like Joe Thornton, Wayne Simmons, Jimmy Vesey, who make significantly less. We're talking like two, three million or less in the case of Jumbo Joe, who makes the minimum. Wayne Simmons took less. They, the Leafs are the closest thing we have to an NBA-style roster in the NHL in terms of roster composition because they have guys who are what we in the basketball world call ring chasers. The guys who, during this decade, either took less to play for the Lakers with LeBron, the Cavs with LeBron, the Warriors with KD and Steph. When you have guys willing to take significantly less than they are worth, you can make that kind of roster construction work where you only have $41 million for 14 other roster players. You can figure that out, but it does force you into some awkward predicaments where you're going to have to dump salary, you're going to have to make moves, whether you want to talk about the Leafs giving away a first-round pick to make the Patrick Marlowe contract go away last year, if you want to talk about the Leafs trading Kasperi Kapanen for a first-round draft selection because they weren't going to be able to afford to give him an extension. When you are building with that little bit of leeway in your construction, you don't have a lot of room. And of course, when you are dealing with such a fine line where you only have 40-ish million dollars to play with to fill out the rest of your roster... You struggle around the margins. You are going to the bargain bin, or you're hoping guys are willing to take less than they're worth to fill out your team. Yes, Toronto is playing in that Cupcake North division where, because they drive offense so well against most opponents, they are able to control the flow of the game. They create more chances. They control the puck. They play with tempo. And against the teams in that division who... Lack on the back end, which is pretty much all of them. None of the seven teams in the North Division play particularly good defense. And none of the goaltenders in that division, aside from Connor Hellebuck, are particularly good. I don't really believe in Jake Allen of the Canadian save percentage. It's a bit fugazi. It's a bit disingenuous. But when we're talking about roster construction, I'm thinking about this in terms of the Rangers going forward. Because... Yes, they still have room to play with. They have an inordinate number of players on entry-level contracts where their cap hit is less than a million dollars per year. Yes, they do have cap bonuses for reading certain thresholds, whether it's games played, points, awards, that kind of thing. You look at what works around the league when you are building your roster, whether you want to talk about types of players, how you build your roster, what where you allocate your cap space. The Rangers, one of the few teams to try a goalie-heavy method team build, where they had the highest allocation of their cap hit tied up in their goaltender, which, when you have a player who is above the rest of the players at his position, like Henrik Lundqvist, is a worthy gamble, because a hot goaltender can win a Stanley Cup, not by himself, but can get them there. Um, the 
perfect example is the St. Louis Blues, who won the Cup two years ago. The Blues were not the best team in the playoffs by any stretch, but they had a hot goalie. Jordan Bennington went crazy the year before. Same thing. That Washington team that won the Cup with Braden Holtby, that Washington team wasn't particularly better than any other Washington team this decade. It's just he was hot at the right time, and they found the right window of opportunity. The Rangers, I think, have learned their lesson. They are not going to be giving a goaltender north of probably $7 million again for the foreseeable future. They're going to have a decision to make with Igor Shosturkin this upcoming summer. It's probably a bridge situation. I doubt they're willing to dole out a long-term deal based on, you know, 25-ish games of NHL experience at the present moment. By the end of the season, Igor will be somewhere in the ballpark of probably 40-ish starts. That's not enough to make a definitive judgment as to whether or not he is worth a long-term extension. I do think eventually the Rangers and Shesterkin will get there, but when we're talking about how you build your team, when you look at Toronto, you look at Edmonton, and you look at Ottawa, these are three teams that bottomed out for an extended period of time. The Oilers have made the playoffs twice in 10 years, one of which was the playing round last summer in the bubble where they lost to the Chicago Blackhawks. And the other time was McDavid's second year in the league. They got to the second round of the playoffs and then lost. But we are talking about a team that is all-time historically futile in the modern era, post the 2005 Stanley Cup appearance where they played the Carolina Hurricanes. The Oilers have largely been irrelevant. They've had amazing luck when it comes to the ping-pong balls. They had an inordinate number of top five picks in the NHL draft, whether you want to talk about Taylor Hall, Ryzen Eugene Hopkins, Niall Yakupov, Connor McDavid, Leon Dreisaitl, Jesse Pugliarvi. They've had an inordinate number of guys they've selected in the top five of the entry draft, and they have pretty much nothing to show for it. They got to the second round of the playoffs once. Connor McDavid, since he was drafted in 2015, the summer of 2015, meaning his first full season in the league with 2015-2016. McDavid has one real playoff run where they got to the second round. They look to be in good shape to make the playoffs this year in that North division. I feel pretty confident in saying that Edmonton is either the second or third best team in that division, depending on the day of the week and depending how the Montreal Canadiens rebound from this lull they're in, but McDavid will probably make the playoffs this year, and you're probably looking at a first-round series against either Winnipeg, Montreal, or Calgary. It's pretty safe to say that the Senators and the Canucks are dead when it comes to the playoffs. Even though the Canucks are only three points out of a playoff spot at the present moment, they have not played well this year. They've been extremely streaky, and they really got as far as they did last year based on their goaltending playing out of their mind. But when we're looking at this big picture, the Rangers have checked off that box. They've had two guys in the top five, Capococco and Alexis Lafreniere. Those are your two building blocks. Those are your blue chips. Then, when you look at the rest of the builds, Edmonton does not have any real other 
elite high-end talent aside from McDavid, Dreisaitl, and they are paid like it. They make a combined $20 million between McDavid and Dreisaitl. It's about $21 million once you round up, but that's your two players. Eugene Hopkins makes a decent amount of money. Other than that, they don't have a ton of money doled out across high-end players. It's pretty evenly distributed amongst the bottom half of the roster. You're talking about some guys making $5 million, some guys in the fours, but relatively speaking, the Oilers have a pretty cheap roster, and it's pretty old, too, when you think about it. You're talking about James Neal, who's old, Alex Chason, pretty old, Kyle Turris, Josh Archibald, Tyler Ennis has been around the league a long time. And then on the back ends, Chris Russell, Adam Larson, Darnell Nurse, Tyson Berry. These are older guys making a little bit more money. But relatively speaking, their money is not allocated particularly well because they're not getting a ton of value from those mid-level guys, those 4 and $5 million guys. Nurse plays heavy, heavy minutes. I mean, he's played more than 30 minutes twice this year, which is pretty insane. But... Again, Edmonton has struggled to put together a coherent season where they've been able to get to the playoffs and do anything in the playoffs for much of McDavid's tenure. Like I said, only the one playoff series win since McDavid was drafted. Ditto for the Maple Leafs. I mean, the Leafs have yet to win a playoff series with that group of Austin Matthews, Tavares... Mitch Marner, William Nylander, Morgan Wright, they've yet to win a playoff series with that collection of talent. That's not to say they won't. I think if there were ever a year for the Leafs to break through their glass ceiling, it would be this year in that North Division where you're going to be playing either Calgary, Winnipeg, or maybe even Vancouver, Montreal. It really does depend how that four seed shakes out in that North Division. It could be a number of teams falling into that spot, whether you want to talk about a team falling backwards like Montreal or a team like the Canucks making some kind of run. Roster construction-wise, I don't want to say it remains to be seen if you can win a Stanley Cup with that level of cap allocation, with that type meaning, where if you're going to have multiple guys who are making more than $10 million, it, it, it's hard because... When you're paying your top guys that much money, it does mean that you're having to skimp out on other parts of your roster. And and that's fine when you have a number of guys on entry-level contracts, but when it's time to give those entry-level guys the commensurate pay raises with their performance, very quickly you find yourself in a position like Toronto, who's had to get creative in creating cap space. They've had to acquire some older guys who are willing to take less money, and they've had to lose guys for less than they were worth in trades because they just they couldn't get under the cap without taking lesser value for trades. So when we talk about what the Rangers are looking at here as the Vegas Golden Knights just scored with the net empty, Mark Stone just put a nice pass for Alex Talk. What a sequence. Man, Vegas is fun to watch. Vegas is, I think, I talked about this with Pitts last week on the show. The, I think the model the Rangers need to be looking at and most of the league needs to be looking at is the Vegas Golden Knights because the way their cap is allocated, it's pretty evenly dispersed amongst mid-level guys. You're talking about Pacioretty, who makes 7, William Carlson, who makes 5, 9, 
Riley Smith, who makes five, Marsha Show, who makes five, Alex Tuck, who makes 4.75, Chandler Stevenson, who only makes 2.75. Then on the back end, you're paying a premium price for Petrangelo, who makes $8.8 million per year. You have to give him a pretty big long-term contract for someone who's not aging amazingly well, but is still a high-end player. Shea Theodore, 5.2 million. Alec Martinez, 4 million. He's an expiring contract. And then Marc-Andre Fleury, 7. And Robin Leonard, 5. Vegas's money is pretty well dispersed through their lineup. And yes, they're, I, I know they have two guys who are making a lot of money, relatively speaking, for the hockey world. Mark Stone making that 9-ish, and then Petrangelo making that 8.8. But that's still less money than, you know, the Leafs are paying Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner. And while the production isn't comparable in terms of counting stats, uh, value-wise, what Stone gives you in terms of his defense and his chance creation what Petrangelo gives you because of the style of play Vegas has, it's really an interesting case study in experimentation. You, you got to remember, Vegas is an expansion team. Vegas has only been in the league four years now, and they've continually been on, I don't want to say the cutting edge, but they've been at the forefront of some very interesting roster moves of Using your prospects aggressively when you have a good core that is underpaid, like they did when you talk about Riley Smith, Wild Bill Carlson, Marsha Show, the, the anchor to the team that made the cup final their first year in existence. But Vegas has been aggressive in acquiring high-end talent, like trading for Stone, trading for Pacioretty, signing Petrangelo. Then, when you're putting that around what you already had in place, your roster is pretty evenly constructed and you have room to work with. That's one of the things that is important about having a bulk of your roster being those four and five million dollar a year players is you have flexibility. Those guys, it's doable to make the contracts work because even if a player isn't panning out, it's a, it's not impossible to trade someone who's only making 4 or 5 million dollars a year. It's a lot harder to trade someone who's making, you know, 8, 9, 10, even 12 million in some cases. And you see that on some teams. I know I've already talked about it a little bit with a few people, but Jacob Trouba's contract is basically immovable at this point. Not only because he has the no movement clause, but at $8 million a year, he's the 8th highest paid defenseman in the entire NHL, and holy shit, Mark Stone, uh, I'm watching the Vegas-Minnesota game as I'm recording, and he picked up his 5th assist on the game-winning goal of the game, and my god, Mark Stone is just fucking insane. But circling back around, circling back around, when we look at teams that are winning Stanley Cups, when you want to talk about the Lightning this past year, you talk about the Blues two years ago, the Capitals three years ago, you see some trend lines in how they are built. Yes, they have high-end talent, but not all of those guys were drafted in the top 5% of the draft. Uh, Tampa Bay, uh, Braden Point, he was a mid he was a second-round pick. You talk about Hedman, he was 11th overall. You talk about Kucherov, he's a third-round draft selection. Yeah, the Russian guys, they come over a little bit later. That's why they fall later in the draft. But Tampa Bay is the perfect 
case study as to why there is no one-size-fits-all for roster building because they manage their players so well because they put them in a position to succeed and their talent development is otherworldly. I thought Nikita Kucherov was going to be good when he was on that triplets line that tortured the Rangers in the 2015 Eastern Conference Finals. I never thought Nikita Kucherov was going to be a top 10 player in the entire league back then. Now it's pretty obvious why he is. He's such a unique blend of skating and shooting. But to get that from someone who was a third round pick is absurd. And it just speaks to how strong of an organization Tampa is. What can we learn from teams that make it work? The number one thing is really being sure before you giving guys extensions. You gotta use up all those restricted free agency years on guys you're not sure about or you end up giving out bad contracts to players before they've really reached the apex of what they can be with your team. Or you gotta get a guy for a contract worth less than they are. Uh, the, the, te- the perfect example is big picture, like, around the league, you gotta look at what Vegas did with guys like Marsha Show with Riley Smith, where they gave those guys extensions pretty early, before they were eligible for unrestricted free agency, and they got them for less than they were worth, but because they did that, they are able to allocate more money in other places, and it's gotta be your hope if you are a Ranger fan, that they can give Adam Fox a long-term deal that's for, like, you know, seven-ish million dollars as opposed to using all his restricted free agency years and then he gets to UFA and you're looking at if the cap goes back up and we get out of this pandemic sometime soon. Adam Fox is, you know, a few years away from being 27 eligible for unrestricted free agency, but, you know, if the cap keeps going up, $10 $10 million isn't out of the question for what Adam Fox can give you production-wise. Uh, his underlying numbers haven't been great this year, but that's because he's playing absurd minutes against absurd competition. But you got to look at the salary allocation. That is the key thing I want people who listen to today's episode to take away. How you build your roster through your cap allocation. That is your foundation. You gotta know where you wanna allocate money and why. You can't throw out money willy nilly, otherwise, you run into problems. Think about what the Rangers had happen to them at the end of their run in 2015, post the elimination against the Lightning in the Eastern Conference Finals. They gave out too much money to certain positions. As good as Henrik Lundqvist was, no goaltender is worth eight ish million a year. They gave Dan Girardi that extension for five-ish million. They gave Mark Stoll the extension for five-plus million. You you gave out too much money to guys that were not producing for you. The Rangers are in a good spot right now to maintain their financial flexibility, to lock up a few young contributors earlier. You want to look at someone who's a good example? You roll the dice on someone like Philip Heedle, who's, you know, 20, going on 22 years old by the start of the next season, give him a six-year deal worth $4.5 million. And if you roll the dice right, Heedle's a 60-point forward if he's your second-line center playing with a Lafreniere or a Kako in a few years. And if you're only giving Heedle $4, $4.5 million a year, that's a big underpay for someone who has 60 
55, 60 point potential if you give him decent line mates. I know that's really only based off of a small sample. Heedle got hurt very early this year, but in the few games he did play, he looked awesome. Uh, he's supposed to be back if you're listening to this episode on Tuesday. Heedle's supposed to play against the Sabres tonight, so if he gets back on track, he gets comfortable, starts thriving, play again. There's an example of somewhere the Rangers can save a little bit of money and maintain their flexibility going forward. Of course, this all goes out the window if they trade for Jack Eichel. If you trade for Jack Eichel, you are looking at a team build comparable to the Maple Leafs where the Rangers would be playing Jack Eichel, Panarin, Truba, and Kreider. About about $37 million for that four players combined. And you're looking at a Toronto team build very quickly, which wouldn't be tenable for the type of build the Rangers currently are undertaking because they have so many young guys who they expect big things from. You talk about Fox, you talk about Lafreniere, you talk about Kaka. Those are only, like, your marquee guys. Then you're talking about, like, Heedle, you're talking about Kratzov, you're talking about some of the other defensemen they have in the pipeline, like Nils Lundqvist they like a lot, but... You run out of cap space very, very quickly when you are building an NHL team because you don't have a lot of cap space to play with and because the elite of elite players command so much of that cap space. Think of it like this. A player like Panarin, who commands a top five cap hit in the entire league, he's a little more than an eighth of your salary cap. You combine that with Truba, you're up to $19 million really, really quick. That's just about a little bit less than a quarter of your salary cap in two players. Kreider, a six man, you get up to 25. You add Zabinijad to that, you get to 30. Do that to 37.5%. And really quick, you run out of your cap space. And that is my big, big warning when it comes to just how teams are building their rosters in the NHL, especially in these extremely top-heavy models, because we haven't seen a model like Toronto's, like Edmonton's, work yet. I mean, going back two years ago in that Blues-Bruins Stanley Cup final, I remember writing a story at the time that no player on either team made more than $8 million per year And it's part of what allowed those rosters to be so deep, to roll four lines, three D pairs, and then both teams having quality backup goalies. (laughs) Really quick, you can run out of cap space. And I understand the Rangers had to give Panarin a little bit more than he was worth, but he's delivered. He has more games with two points than games with no points as a Ranger. I think that says all that needs to be said about Panarin's value. But... I'll leave you guys with this. I think it's very interesting that we have a handful of teams. You talk about the Rangers, the LA Kings, the Detroit Red Wings, the Ottawa Senators, the New Jersey Devils. All of these teams embarked on a wholesale teardown resembling what the Maple Leafs did and not what the Oilers did. The Oilers were trying to win. They were just bad. But you have a non-insignificant number of teams around the league looking to replicate roster success because there is so much that goes into winning the Stanley Cup that is above your talent. 
the most talented team does not always win the Stanley Cup. It's about the team that gets hot at the right time, that has the ability to win the Stanley Cup. And in theory, teams feel like if they're selecting multiple players in the top five of the entry draft, those guys have the highest potential ceiling of reaching a Stanley Cup apex while they're under the control of the team that drafts them. And that is why all of these teams are trying to crib note what the Maple Leafs and the Oilers have done. And you're seeing how that plays out. It can go very wrong. You look at the Buffalo Sabres, they've tried to do it that way. It has not worked for them. They're going on 11 years of not making the playoffs. And it's the textbook example of what goes wrong when you don't really have a plan other than just ripping off what other people are doing. And I know I say that as someone who just said, I really would like the Rangers to look at and Golden Knights type build as far as how their cap is allocated because those middle class players, the guys who make between four and six million dollars, that is where you can make a difference. In theory, your top six is supposed to be able to cancel out the other team's top six when you are in the playoffs. In theory, that is your goal. No matter what, your top six is going to be able to produce against the other team's top six. It's where those depth guys, that bottom six and that third defensive pair, are those guys confident enough to drive possession? Can they create scoring chances? Can they add you some secondary scoring? Can they provide some offense because the top sixes are canceling each other out? And I know that isn't sexy, the third line right wing who makes $3.75 million, but that kind of guy, you know, 15 points in 25-ish playoff games, 30-ish playoff games across four rounds. If you're going the full distance to win a Stanley Cup, you got to win 16 games. You can play as many as 28 in the playoff. You have a third-line winger who can give you 12, 13 points in all of those games. And realistically speaking, if you're winning the Stanley Cup, you're probably not going to a Game 7 in all four rounds because you'll be exhausted by the time you get there. But the point remains, you want to have a healthy middle class on your roster, a lot of guys in that 4 to $6 million range. And realistically speaking, you want your high-end guys making $9.5 million or less. You want, you want to steal the Tampa Bay version of this where... Even though their best players weren't all drafted that highly in the draft, like, yeah, Stamkos was the number one overall pick, but you're talking about Coyne, Kucherov, Hedman, etc. You want those guys make, you want your best players making around eight, nine million dollars. That number will continue to go up over time as the salary cap eventually rebounds, and you want to think about cap hits in terms of percentage of salary cap, but you want your hockey team to have as much value dispersed through its lineup as possible. That means having as much financial flexibility as possible. And it's what I find maybe the most interesting about hockey is how the contracts work, how the rosters are built, because you need something from every single guy. You need something from all 18 guys you dress on any given night. 19 if you want to count the backup goalie because they do dress and have to be available in an emergency situation. But I digress. I really enjoyed doing this episode. I only thought of this topic as I was looking at the schedule for games for Monday night. So I will see you guys tomorrow with Sir Blakey Locks as we talk about Liverpool Football Club. 
and where the club goes from here in this rough spell they're having in what was supposed to be a title defense season, but the injuries have caught up with them. They've had a particularly draining season. A number of people have lost loved ones to either the pandemic or tragic accidents. So Liverpool's dealing with a lot. It'll be good to talk about it with Blake. I will see you guys tomorrow. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode.